Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. I seek refuge with Allah from Satan the accursed in the name of Allah the gracious the merciful. Peace be upon you. Good morning. Welcome to the Weekend World Show uh, with me, Walid Ahmed and uh, Daniel Connell. Uh, it is uh, Sunday the 11th of February 2024 and the time is coming up to three minutes past uh, ten. Uh, uh, listen, you can listen to the Voice of Islam on uh, DAB Radio, mobile and online, 24 hours a day broadcasting live from Battle of the Mosque in Modern. The Weekend World Show is a current affairs show with the week's news, views and reviews from a faith and non-faith perspective. Uh, it is an interactive show. It means that you have the opportunity, should you wish to uh, take uh, benefit of it, of uh, ringing in and hearing your thoughts on any of the uh, things that we may be discussing during the course of this program. Uh, it is promoting the weekend world, the message of peace and unity, uh, discussing religion, politics, uh, sports, and topics of faith and enlightenment, the message of Islam for the West. Uh, the views on the weekend world show are those of the individuals and guests. Uh, and uh, we have, uh, uh, in the absence of Asa Hamdi, myself and Daniel Kalon, uh, holding the fort up for him while he's away. Um, Assalamu alaikum, Daniel. How are you, sir? Alaikum assalam. Alhamdulillah, I'm well. Thank you. I thought for our listeners, honesty is the best policy. If I lose mine, honour, I lose myself. This is William Shakespeare. And uh, uh, Shakespeare also said, to be honest uh, as this world goes is to be one man picked out of 10,000. Your thoughts on that? It's a very wise and time-tested um, approach to life. Honesty is the best policy. As the Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, said that honesty is the best virtue. The Quran, uh, new, on numerous occasions, keeps mentioning that become go be with the truthful. So truthfulness is, is very, very heavily um, emphasized in the Quran. And also another point, in uh, once uh, there was a person in Arabia at the time of the Prophet, peace be upon him, who said that he was unable to stop sinning. And the Prophet, and he asked the Prophet, which sin should I stop? Mm -hmm. uh, he had some very grave sins mm -hmm. that he was committing regularly. And the Prophet said, stop lying, mm -hmm. first and foremost, and then you'll stop all the other sins. And he said, I'd, I'd commit larger sins. And he said, just stop lying, and then we'll see. So whenever he'd come back to report to the Prophet about his um, how many? How much he sinned? Um, usually a few days later or a week later, because he was not allowed to lie. He knew that he's not allowed to lie to the prophet. He made sure not to sin in that time period, and gradually he stopped sinning altogether just by stopping mm -hmm. lying. So honesty so it's is the, the root best. of all evil, as some people say. In a way, it is. Yeah. yeah exactly. Mm -hmm. Okay. Very interesting. I think we'll be saying more about uh, the example of the Holy Prophet and. Uh, the promised Messiah later on during the course of this program regarding uh, uh, truth, honesty and integrity because this is the theme that will run through the first part of the show. Uh, we will begin with some of the news headlines on the news review which we followed promptly by our analysis of the state of our political parties preparing for the forthcoming elections likely to be probably this year. Uh, possibly before the end of January next year. We'll be speaking to Hanif Khan, uh, Labour councillor and Conservative MP aspirant Mr. Philip Gent uh, as well uh, will be with us, as will our old friend Nasser Bhatt representing the Lib Dems. Uh, we particularly want to examine the issue of truth, honesty and integrity in politics. Um, after the 11 o'clock news, uh, Dr. Amjad Khan will be uh, joining us uh, to assess the worrying situation of addiction in this country 
And the uh, last part of the show, we'll be having uh, the Ask the uh, Imam segment. Uh, what do you have in store for us, Daniel? Uh, education. Ah, Education, <laughs> education, education, as one former prime minister said during his campaign. All right, so you're uh, emulating him. So what's so different about uh, what you're going to be doing? What's different is that we'll be answering the question, are Muslims barbaric? Are they uneducated? Are they allergic to education? Mm-hmm. Or what legacy do they hold with regards to education? Oh, very interesting. And uh, for the last, part, very last part of the show, we'll have uh, Shahid Khan, who will be discussing... Uh, certain uh, aspects of sports, uh, the blue card, uh, Jurgen Klopp, and uh, the way the premiership is uh, uh, developing. And also, I suppose, and if we have time, we'll talk about the uh, uh, final of the African Cup of Nations, which is uh, going to be between Ivory Cross and Nigeria. You're going to be watching it, aren't you, Daniel? Because you have a connection with uh, Africa, do you? Very true, but I have no connection with watching football. So oh, I see. Okay. <laughs> All right. Okay. Uh, <laughs> anyway, so um, uh, we have lots on the show. And uh, as I said before, if you want to share your views or comments, then uh, please uh, do so. You can phone uh, by dialing 0208-687-7878. Or you can uh, tweet us, but that's not the right term anymore. You can post your views on at... Voice of Islam UK. Uh, as I mentioned before, the views on the Weekend World Show are those of the individuals and guests. So, uh, let's go on without a break, straight to the news review. Um, we have uh, the uh, at the top of this news, the uh, earliest news that we received during the week on Monday, uh, when uh, the nation received the worrying uh, uh, bulletin about our head of state, uh, the king was suffering from cancer. Uh, the statement of 5th of, uh, of uh, this month uh, from Buckingham Palace read, uh, during the king's recent hospital procedure of benign prostate enlargement, a separate issue of concern was noted. Subsequent diagnostic tests were have identified a form of cancer. So this is what the statement read. And it went on to say, His Majesty has today commenced a schedule of regular treatments during which time he has been advised by doctors to postpone public-facing duties. Throughout this period, His Majesty will continue to undertake state business and official prepare work as usual. What else did you say then, Daniel? His Majesty... Uh, His Majesty has chosen to share his diagnosis to prevent speculation and in the hope it may assist public understanding for all those around the world who are affected by cancer. Are you are you surprised that there has been this kind of openness of the king's medical condition? It wasn't something that's been done in the past, certainly not with his uh, mother and uh, grandfather. Yeah, I'm I'm not surprised actually, and the reason for that is. It, it's not the most educated reason, but it's Netflix. Because I've been watching the series The Crown on Netflix, and if the portrayal... In, instead of football. <laughs> instead <Yeah>. of football. <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. If the portrayal of the, the then Prince of Wales and current King Charles is anything to go by, obviously I'm aware that it's dramatised, I'm aware that mm. you know they don't know all the details, but what it seems like is that he he has always been in favour of a certain degree of transparency um, with regards to um, the private affairs of the family, the royal family, to the public. Mm -hmm. 
in that sense, and the reason he 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 thinks that way is because it would strengthen the monarchy. It would make them more relatable. It, it would allow more understanding within the public of the royal family. Um, so in in that way, I can I can understand why he chose to disclose this information because mm. if and especially considering that he's just um, ascended the throne, if all of a sudden he disappears from public services. Um, a lot of questions would be asked, and and it probably caused more problems not revealing this information mm. than revealing it causes. I believe that's my personal opinion. I'm no yeah, of course, of course. No, no, thanks very much. I don't think I, I can disagree with you on that. Yes, um, this has raised the issue of cancer, and there has been a dramatic increase in calls to cancer charities and GPs. Uh, do you think that's a good thing? Absolutely, yeah. Um, cancer we've been hearing all our lives is this incurable disease which sometimes can be put off a bit by chemotherapy but that has a lot of uh, disadvantages as well a lot of side effects but we have to remember we have to not lose faith in um, the mercy of God as the Quran mentions a couple of times because as it is mentioned in Sahih Bukhari which is a collection of the sayings the most authentic collection of the sayings of the Prophet Muhammad peace and blessings of Allah be upon him that God there is no disease that God has created for which there is no cure mm. so the more um, awareness that goes towards cancer charities and donations towards that um, and scientific research towards all, all of this research uh, the more chances we have of eventually finding that cure there is mm. a cure we firmly believe that, but we just haven't come across it yet. Yes, and new cures are coming to the fore. I think traditionally it's been chemotherapy and uh, radiotherapy, yeah. but uh, there are other uh, other forms of treatment that are uh, now being developed, uh, which have, have produced, have uh, proved to be uh, more effective and less uh, less in, less um, troublesome than yeah. uh, radiotherapy and chemotherapy. And, uh, and we were also told that some f- nearly 400,000 people uh, are diagnosed with cancer in this country every year. Wow. And uh, half of them live, uh, are treated well enough to live for at least 10 years or more. So there's hope for the king. There is hope, yes. exactly. Yeah, I've got a work colleague where, where I work mm. who also suffered from cancer and mm-hmm. he's made a, almost a complete recovery really? now. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And also I think just a small point here, it's worth noting to all the conspiracy theorists out there who think that the uh, that the deep state and the elite um, have the cure for cancer and they haven't been sharing it. If that was the case... <laughs> the I didn't know that was the case. All right. Okay, so there is this, uh, this feeling. Okay. There is that conspiracy theory, okay. but if that was the case, then the king would not have been suffering from cancer or mm. he wouldn't have made that knowledge public. He would have cured himself. <laughs> <laughs> yes. All right. Um, on to the next story. Um, this is uh, the bombardment of the Gaza, which continues unabated uh, with over 28,000, I think, now killed. Uh, many more injured. Uh, the obstruction for letting aid in and deliberate uh, cutting off of water and electricity has compounded the misery of the 2.3 million Palestinians living there. Uh, even the United States has recognized the disp- disproportionate nature of the attacks inflicted on Gaza. And here's what uh, uh, President Biden said on Thursday, 8th of February. So that's just a Thursday gone. If I can get my... Yes, there it goes. There. I'm of the view, as you know, that the conduct of the response in Gaza, in the Gaza Strip has been um, over the top. I think that, uh, as you know, initially the 
president of Mexico, Sisi, did not want to open up the gate to allow humanitarian material to get in. I talked to him. I convinced him to open the gate. I talked to Bibi to open the gate on the Israeli side. I've been pushing really hard, really hard, to get humanitarian assistance into Gaza. There are a lot of innocent people who are starving, a lot of innocent people who are in trouble and dying. And it's got to stop, number one. Number two, I was also in a position that I'm the guy that made the case that we have to do much more to increase the amount of material going in, including fuel, including other items. I've been on the phone with the Qataris, I've been on the phone with the Egyptians, I've been on the phone with the Saudis to get as much aid as we possibly can into Gaza. There are innocent people and innocent women and children who are also in bad, badly in need of help. So that was President Biden on Thursday, and currently there are 1.7 million Palestinians that have, uh, are said to have gathered in Rafah, having fled from their homes. Uh, Israel plans to uh, launch an onslaught on this uh, enclave, which is causing concern. And here's what the White House spokesman said on Friday. John Kirby. Our view is... Any military, any major military operation in Rafah at this time, under these circumstances, with more than a million, probably more like a million and a half Palestinians who are seeking refuge and have been seeking refuge in Rafah, without due consideration for their safety, uh, would be a disaster, and we would not support it. Right. Uh, do you think, um, uh, Daniel, uh, this marks the turning point of the United States uh, Unequivocal uh, support for Israel over recent hostilities. Uh, that's a that's a loaded question because how do we define the United States here? Do we define it as the general population, which has already uh, been quite aware of the plight of the Palestinians, especially recent in the recent months? Are we talking about the political class? Yes, there have been more calls, as we've just heard, for some sort of uh, proportion. Uh, to be brought into this disproportionate response. Uh, but then I I don't know, call me um, cynical, but I don't see the the military industrial complex and the weapons and arms factories and the big large corporations seeing any benefit in hostilities seizing. So, you know, who runs the shots and who who calls the shots and who, who runs the show? That's the, hmm. that's the real question. Okay. Um, do you think there's, a, there's hope now for an early cessation to violence, especially in view of uh, the concern that has been expressed not only by, by President Biden but also by the United Nations and the European Union uh, about uh, this impending onslaught on Gaza? I certainly hope so. I hope so. Um, I'm not. I don't want to be a uh, come across. I don't want to come across as a pessimist in this show today. But I'm. I'm not entirely sure because. Uh, I believe that there should have been obviously a ceasefire a long, long time ago and there still isn't one. And it seems like the pressure is slowly mounting towards a ceasefire, but who knows? Because as I've heard, Benjamin Netanyahu plans on carrying this on for a a good few months. Mm. And it's not about the the months at this point in time because what um, has happened to the Palestinians in a matter of a couple of months is what um, the people of Iraq Afghanistan suffered over a period of years. Hmm. So an early cessation, uh, I don't even know if we can call it an early cessation, an immediate cessation needs to come come into place. Hmm. And uh, your view about long-term prospect of peace, what do you think? Is there a, 
is there genuine hope for that? <laughs> oh, you lost. <laughs> no. Again, I don't want to be the pessimist. Look, the thing is, the way it looks and the way a lot of world leaders are now um, actually ra- raising their voice is that there has to be a two-state solution according to the 1967 UN border. There has to be. There's no other way hmm. of peace between the two sides. Hmm. But the um, current Israeli administration has rejected our hand. Outright, yeah. And hmm. and they're not planning on a two-state solution as far as anyone can see. And even their words and their statements don't support any notion of a two-state solution. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh so it what do you what do you think maybe bring some positivity into this? <laughs> uh I I don't uh I reject your pessimism. Okay. I put it that way. Um I think it's it's going to be difficult. But I think that you know if we go back to the theme that we are trying to uh uh work on and frame this uh, early part of the program on uh, truth, honesty and uh, integrity. I think that if that if those uh, values are applied then uh, it would be very soon that this conflict can be resolved but uh, i think that that's uh, a forlorn hope at the moment it looks like anyway yeah um there is of of course there's a lot of pressure from other nations uh, particularly the global south as mm-hmm. they called uh, because much of the support for um what is happening in gaza Uh, is coming from the west uh, it is not something that's supported by the majority of the, uh, of uh, nations and this is reflected in the un votes especially in the most recent vote regarding cessation of hostilities uh, uh, where it was only i think four four nations or five nations that voted against it um yeah. united states being one of them which uh, had a veto of course yeah and so that uh, that was rejected so uh unless we and this is what his holiness has also been uh, advocating that um uh, unless we um, apply justice in our dealings international dealings uh, then there is no uh, real prospect for continued peace mm. but uh, now mention his holiness what, what else has he said so he's actually been very firm about his stance so he's been mentioning um this conflict and the plight of the palestinians um for months now every pretty much every friday sermon since the hostilities began mm. um on the 7th of october 2023 and his stance has been quite quite firm he's he's called it for what it is he's called a spade a spade he said that it's it's oppression against um the innocent people of palestinians uh, obviously you know there are there might be a handful of non-innocent combatants uh-huh. um but it's the innocent palestinians the large majority of the population which are suffering and this conflict um he's constantly reminded us to to pray for the plight of palestinians he's constantly focused on um the theme of justice the only way to um solve this whole um issue is through justice from both sides they need to be just they need to be truthful they need to be honest they need to um be kind to each other and he's also warned of the 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 potential threats and dangers of this conflict if it goes on for example he mentioned um on uh the 2nd of february on this friday so in his friday sermon on the 2nd of february that uh, you know there's a chance of this conflict spilling into lebanon and that would affect the west bank the palestinians in the west bank um even more than it already is so at the moment the the, the conflict's focused on gaza but it could spread even further and have regional con- consequences. Okay, no, thanks very much. Thanks very much for that um uh, Daniel. 
Um, we could talk for, about this issue a lot longer, I know, but uh, time is against us and we have to press on and look at uh, the next part of the show, which is behind the headlines. Uh, we were supposed to have a jingle, but I think uh, that uh, eludes us at the moment, so we'll uh, press on regardless. Uh, we are hoping to talk to uh, representatives of the three main parties in this country, Anif Khan, Philip Gent and Nasser, but... Um, our technician um, is making sure that those lines will be uh, connected and available to us. I hope that Philip Gent can go first, Armagan, if you don't mind, um, because I think he has to attend another uh, event. So if he can be come on first instead of Anif Khan, then uh, we can proceed with that part of the program. But in order to kick this off properly, we'll have a verse of the Holy Quran that is relevant إِنَّ اللَّهَ يَأْمُرُكُمْ أَن تُؤَدُّوا الْأَمَانَاتِ إِلَىٰ أَهْلِهَا وَإِذَا حَكَمْتُمْ بَيْنَ النَّاسِ أَن تَحْكُمُوا بِالْعَدْلِ إِنَّ اللَّهَ نِعِمَّا يَعِظُكُمْ بِهِ إِنَّ اللَّهَ كَانَ سَمِيعًا بَصِيرًا well, the translation of certainly the relevant, uh, the first part of the verse was, Verily Allah commands you to make over trust to those entitled to them, and that when you judge between men, you judge with justice. So it is uh, a verse that is in keeping with uh, the theme that we want to pursue, which is uh, truth, honesty, and integrity when it comes to our dealings, including uh, politics. Uh, we are discussing the forthcoming campaigns in the elections, uh, which is likely to be sometime this year, uh, or maybe I think the last date it can be held is uh, January 25th uh, next year. And we're trying to do this in the uh, in the framework of honesty, integrity, uh, which uh, many feel has been eroded in British politics. And these are values not irretrievable, really and perhaps our experts will be. Uh, able to raise our expectation in this regard. Now, uh, I'm, I see that Hanif Khan is uh, on the line. Let me just say, Salaam alaikum, Hanif. Wa alaikum salam. Lovely to hear from you and speak to you and Danielle as well. Okay. that's. Are you a Labour councillor? I introduced you as a Labour councillor. Yeah, you're right. I was a councillor from 2014 to 2022. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I stopped being a councillor the Labour Party, but I'm still um, very active in the party. Okay. And uh, are you hoping to stand for uh, election? Uh, do you have a seat that has uh, been allocated yet. to you? I'm sorry? No, not, not yet. yet. So, uh, so I'm trying. So mm-hmm. it's always a very difficult time to, I'm very anxious for many people who are aspiring to become members of Parliament because many people, especially in the Labour Party, feel that as the Labour Party will probably be in power, therefore every seat is contested a lot more. People mm. are very hopeful. Uh, where you would may not have had that many people going for a seat, you've got a lot more people. So, uh. yeah, I've been quite close in various places. So okay. I'm actually trying now for um, an area uh, not far from the mosque. So let's see. Mm. The Labour leader, Keith Starmer, has come in for a lot of criticism in, in the way he's dealt with the... Um, Jeremy Corbyn, under his leadership, he was campaigning full throttle for his election in 2019. 
But since he's become leader, he has totally disowned him and thrown him out of the parliamentary party. Does this strike you as somebody who's honest and uh, one with integrity and truth, truthfulness? It's a really difficult question to answer because politics in itself really puts those challenges at the forefront. And, you know, a day in politics it could be like a month and a year in one other people's life and other industries. But many people really liked Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, some of the, well, the policies that he tried to promote uh, are coming to the fore now. Many of you spoke about four-day week. A lot of companies are trying it. Uh, his kind of um, attitude towards uh, many people on the on the left uh, in his privatization of the national rail service and the investment in the nhs were all really good policies but i think um what you're asking is is the internal side of the labor party and what i would probably say to you is that when we lost very badly in 2019 um we were kind of thought as a party that were down and out. And uh, when people used to shake your hand and say, well, yeah, we'll see you in two terms, and you've got no chance of ever being in power again, to where we are today on the verge of people saying that we are now going to be in power is a complete turnaround. And one of the things that Keir Starmer has told the Labour Party membership is that when he took charge, he had to look at the party from within and turn it around and look and, and just fix the problems that were associated with it. And every party has got issues that it needs to resolve, and that's what he did. Mm. And there's been some fallout from that, and you know, Jeremy Corbyn has been one of those, and many other people, say from from the left of the party, ha- have actually fallen fallen foul of that. But one of the biggest things that the Labour Party was being accused of at that time was the, you know, the accusation that it was anti-Semitic and also things like Islamophobia, and it was not a very welcoming party. But for us to be able to become in power, not an opposition, we have to be like we are ready to govern. Mm. And many things needed to change within the party. So, yeah, I mean, it, it was a difficult transition for the party. But today, on the doorstep, people say, yes, we're voting for you. We need change right now. People are desperate. So, yeah, if the change needed to happen, it needed to happen. Yes, but did he need to treat uh, Jeremy Corbyn? Did he need to disown him if he wanted to change direction? Uh, and it's it's not just that. It's also about what, what the Labour Party actually stands for. Uh, something is said at one stage, and then uh, within a few months, it's, it's changed. I mean, we this, there was a pledge by Keir Starmer that he would abolish the House of Lords, but uh, now we hear that... Uh, uh, the party's denying doing that, uh, and uh, we don't really know what they what they stand for. Well, if you want me to let you know what they stand for, then I can definitely let you know. And there is clear water between us and the Tory party and the Lib Dems and all the other, I imagine, 17 different parties that will put candidates up. The biggest thing is, is that change, people need hope. They are desperate. They need somehow to have hope 
to be able to move forward. And some of the mission statements that are on the Labour Party kind of, that will probably emerge on the manifesto, but no, no parties actually advertise those, but there are many policies. But I think that the biggest thing is, is that if you went through a couple of headlines, you know, we're talking about 7,000 new dental appointments that are focused, especially in areas where people cannot get NHS dentists. We saw it all happen, unfold itself last week in Bristol, where people were queuing up. I mean, these are things that are desperate where people don't know. These are like desert areas where society is just being left alone. We could never imagine that we were talking about the United Kingdom where people couldn't get a dental, a dentist. Um, it's like a draconian situation. And then we know we're trying to put two, two more million operations so that NHS can be re-evaluated in a way where you can have appointments done on the weekends. And obviously, everyone needs hope. That's one of the things you talk about anybody on the doorstep. They want a roof over their head. And our next generation that are coming through, there's no hope ever that they will be able to probably own a home. Mm. I mean, that generation is gone. So the pledge is is that we will build 1.5 million homes. But it's not just about building homes. And that's where many people have, in the past, not really thought about it in terms of when you build a new home you, you've got to build gp surgery you've got to build schools you've got to build a business community and good transport links and i think that's the key thing when we're building home and obviously there is you you know you walk down the street at night time people are so fearful with the antisocial behavior that's taking place and there are very simple things that you can do right now even the tory party that's in power now can make this change today like, for example, ending the £200 value of law, which means if someone comes in a shoplift for the value less than £200, they just go unpunished, and then you find that there's repeat offenders. So all those little things mm. can be done today. Yeah. And, yeah I mean, I could go on and on. Yes, I know. But, uh, Hanif, I mean, there's a lot of things that can be done and that need to be yeah. done, and there's a lot of policies that we can put forward in order to resolve the problems of the nation. But yeah. the issue with, with Labour, according to some, is yeah. that we do not know what you stand for at any oh. given time, So, yeah. and when it will change. And the most, yeah. I mean, the, the, the big uh, shock this week was the uh, dumping of the 28 billion pounds uh, yeah. that was uh, that was marked out of i mean that was announced it was announced in uh, um, in 2021 from what i remember in september 2021 um that uh, was announced by Rachel Reeves that uh, every year of this decade towards that you would spend 28 billion every year towards a transition to a green economy. And that yeah. has gradually been uh, watered down until it was dumped uh, last uh, this uh, Thursday okay. by, by Keir Starmer. He said that they would not be pursuing that. Now, this kind of change uh, means that the electorate doesn't know what you stand for. You, uh, and and when you will change and you will dump the policy that I mean this was a flagship policy of the of the yeah the let, me, let me just come back to you on that hmm. the, the thing that people need to understand in politics is that there are three things that make our world go round it, it's it's three kind of cogs you've got the health of our nation you've got the education of our nation and you've got the workforce of our nation 
Now, each one of those three need to be working in tangent with one another. You can't do one without. So, for example, if you do not have a healthy workforce, you can't get them into work. And therefore, if they're not working, they're not paying into the system. You can't have a, an education system that doesn't work so that children are educated, universities are funded, which then fuel new ideas. So all three of them need to work. Now, one of the biggest achievements, as you know, from the Labour Party is that it's always invested in the health of our nation through the NHS. It's always invested in the education of our nation through the university, through the schools, and therefore which just fuel the workforce. You know, a, a, a hands-on approach. Now, this thing about, more specifically, with the £28 billion that was pledged by Rachel Reeves in 2021... Mm. One of the things that we, when we made that announcement, the interest rates were about 1%. They were not what they were seeing today. And today what we're seeing is, is unable to commit to something like that, the £28 billion every year. So I think what we're doing is being sensible, and so it fits in like the fiscal rules. We're not going to be able to deliver something to the nation. One that is it doesn't work and we can't afford it and it's not something that we can afford to do that's the key thing hmm. so the 28 billion pounds that we referred to has been rolled back but it doesn't mean our values and our commitment to the workforce to the uh, the environment ability we're doing i mean if i give you some statistics i mean a lot of people probably don't know that although it's over a course of five years now, the investment will come in, you've still got the great British energy, which is so important, you know, in terms of having our own mm. energy security and, and having the our energy prices low. It's about £8.3 billion. And then we talk about the still investing in a national wealth fund, which is there for, you know, our industries like steel to happen, still for our giga factories for our batteries that's 7.3 billion and then our warm home plans which is 6.6 billion pounds and then obviously as you know it's been talked about the windfall tax that will money will come from there about 10.8 billion pounds so the challenge that we then have is that we're going to have somehow to raise 12.9 billion pounds in a way and that needs to happen if we're going to fulfill the 28 billion over the course of the term and the, there is where we will talk about growth growth and growth and these are the things that we would have to do without anything without having growth in the economy we're not going to be able to deliver that okay so, so, so effectively what you're saying is that you have to modify your position your policies yes according I mean, to the, the to the changing if it wasn't for the mini-budget that Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng hmm. tried to implement as an experiment... But that was over a year ago. ...our choices in their life hmm. to decide, you know, are they going to be able to pay their mortgages? Can they afford the hmm. rent to skyrocketing? So I would, I, I'm quite happy to for my party to have changed its mind, to look okay. at itself and say, right. right, let's be honest, let's mm -hmm. be truthful with our residents. Because right. that's the most important thing. Okay, Hanif, um, uh, we've, got, we've got Philip Gent also on the line, uh, we're waiting yeah, patiently. Yeah, how are you doing? Salaam Philip, are you with us? Wa alaikum salam, Walidza, wa alaikum salam, Daniel, wa alaikum salam, Hanif. Very, very good to meet you all again. No, no, good. So uh, what, do you, what do you think of what Hanif has been saying? That you have to, you have to change your policies 
uh, depending on the changes that you experience in the wider landscape, uh, wider political landscape, and therefore you can't stick to one. <laughs> we can't stick to one policy. I, th- I think, in fairness to to, to Hanif, um, he, he's trying to defend the indefensible. Uh, in relation sorry, to sorry, uh, flagship, can I finish? Let's let, let him say that the indefensible. Can I finish? I actually, actually, can I finish? Uh, uh, yes. Please don't say. Can the I finish? Yes. Can I finish? No, uh, you can. Do not say the indefensible. Yes, okay. No, please, uh, Hanif, let, let uh, Philip uh, ha- have his say, and then you can come yes, back and, and then object to what he said, if you want to. Yeah. Go ahead, uh, go ahead uh, Philip. But it's up, yes. Um, so so to, to, it's very difficult to defend the indefensible um, and to answer... And, 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 you know, a flagship policy is a flagship policy. And, you know, you either stick to it or or if you move away from it you you admit that you were wrong in the first place and i think you know truth and integrity are key key to politics and uh, that trust with the with the people is imperative in a democratic society mm-hmm. and um, you know often politicians have been um, accused of saying anything to get into power um, and this is this is a case in point. And, I, and thankfully, Rachel Reeves has has won the day um, internally within the Labour Party, and and reined back um, Keir Starmer. Okay, before I let uh, Hanif come in, can't you give credit to Labour for announcing ditching the policy before uh, their manifesto is printed, before they start campaigning for the for the election that they have? Uh, come uh, come clean with the electorate beforehand. Yes, no, absolutely. I think you know if they have come clean, which you know it looks like they have. I think I think that's that's a positive thing. But to announce a flagship policy beforehand, hmm. uh, which was uncosted, um, is is an example of politicians saying you know okay. anything to get into into power, and that's what we must refrain from. But credit where credit's due, they okay. have reigned back. All right. Uh, Hanif, very briefly, because we have to get uh, yeah, Nasser no, I'll, Bhattan I'll on. Be, I'll be, yeah, sure. I'll be very brief. But first of all, when we talk about um, plans that change, change through, we, we know that the government's childcare recruitment campaign that they put in, we now know that the pledge was without a plan. And so the Tory party are making decisions and saying things just to just to entice people to because they're holding onto a thread now this thing about the 28 billion pounds the government today is maxing out the credit card so would you want a Labour Party that's going to come into power and then look at the finances and say right there is no hedgeway in this although over five years you might have a reduction in the debt and that debt over five years will probably only give you thirteen billion pounds. So, what is left? So you have to be honest with the our okay. electorate and say, look, okay, we um, have made a change because we understand the pain you're going through. This is the reality that people mm. are facing. People are having to pull out their teeth by themselves. Children are not going to school. They don't feel like it's it's for them. You've got people 
Okay. Uh, thank you, Hanif. That's fine. That's fine. You've, you've had you say thanks very much for that. Now, I just want to, um, I mean, we, we uh, just uh, quiz uh, Philip Gent on the wider perspective of um, this particular part of the program, because we're talking about honesty, integrity and truth in politics. And many feel, Philip, that your party has a lot to answer for. I mean, your prime minister, former prime minister, it has been established. Uh, had been very loose, had a very loose association with the truth. Do you think that, that the damage that his conduct, I'm talking about Boris Johnson, has inflicted not only on the Tory party but on British politics in general has been devastating and something of which Tories should uh, hold their head, head uh, in shame? I, I think uh, holding a head high in shame is, is probably overdoing it, oh. but it has caused damage. Uh, Boris uh, throughout the COVID crisis, he, he should have run a whiter than white ship. He didn't. It's very regretful. And I, for one, as a conservative, uh, regret the fallout of that. Uh, and I think we should be unequivocal about that. Uh, and I think Boris Johnson, in the cold light of day, when he looks back, he will also regret the fact that he was not able to delegate um, uh, the duties of, of, of ensuring that the COVID requirements were undertaken within mm. 10 Downing Street as effectively as he possibly could have done. He ultimately bears responsibility for what happened in 10 Downing Street, although he may not have been directly responsible for the day-to-day -day operations and understanding what was going on on a day-to-day -day basis, understandably. Ultimately, the, the responsibility falls with him, and we accept that as a I accept that as a member of the Conservative Party. Okay. Um, now, Rwanda. I mean, this is uh, you talked about the uh, Labour's uh, flagship policy, the 28 billion. But it seems Rwanda is the flagship policy of uh, the Conservatives. Now, on this issue, the the Supreme Court unanimously ruled that Rwanda was an unsafe country for asylum seekers to be sent to, and instead of accepting that. Your government moved to pass a law declaring that Rwanda is safe. What does that say about your party's integrity for doing what is right? Right, right. Okay. So I think I think what we've got to bear in mind is that uh, a country uh, has a prime responsibility. A government has a prime responsibility to secure. Uh, the the, uh, the security of its citizens, primarily the security of its citizens, and a, a fundamental part of that is ensuring that the borders are secure. Now, we cannot say that the government's actions are in any way prejudiced towards race, for example. If we look at the immigration figures after Brexit, we have replaced European migration for predominantly migration from the Indian subcontinent and Africa. So it's definitely not a racial issue. When we look at the war in Ukraine, the, the largest and most significant war post-Second post World War, we see how citizens of the UK opened their doors and provided shelter and food and uh, to the citizens of Ukraine in a time of genuine need uh, for them. Now, when we look at illegal migration, we, we have seen the agreement with Albania where we are able to return those that have come into the UK 
or uh, under the guise of modern slavery and trafficking. And, 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 and that is something that cannot be supported. And we have used uh, legal means to return them back home. Now, um, unfortunately, when the vast majority of illegal migrants do not have genuine reason to be here, then the innocent do suffer. The innocent do suffer. Uh, and the Rwanda policy, if we look at the Holy Quran, the <coughs> Holy Quran talks about how refugees need to be treated. And I think it's chapter 9, uh, verse 6 or 7, I can't quite recall, mm. where, you know, we must uh, look after refugees compassionately and escort them to a place of safety. Right. Now, the question is, is Rwanda... And obviously, in Islam, there are no borders. We do not. We, all of the world is God's land, and uh, um, you know, we, we can ignore the concept of borders when we when we think about Islam to an extent. Yes, but Philip, um, the point is that a, a, a law, the highest highest court in the land, has ruled that Rwanda is is unsafe, and instead of accepting that, your government has dismissed. This, this decision and passed a law to the contrary. That's, that is, it does not smack of, uh, of honesty, integrity, does it? I'm caring. You can't hear me? I can hear you. I, 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 I and can, that's, I, that's the point that, I'm trying to... I, I want you to address that particular point. How can you rationalize that? The, the law as it stands... Um, uh, the the highest this this I think we've got to step back here uh, mm -hmm. as 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 Hanif was saying you know our public services are stretched our population is expected to go up to um, seventy million by the two mid two thousand and thirties um, and illegal migration is of huge concern to it's the probably the number two issue on the doorstep illegal mm. migration although the numbers do not appear to be large in the context of total net migration um it's the second biggest issue on the doorstep mm. and we need to bear that in mind okay. when we look at trying to address this from a political perspective what i would say is that the vast majority of people that are coming here on, on an illegal through illegal routes they are coming from countries that do not respect the rule of law that do not respect human rights and that do not have fundamental freedoms or a democratic society. Does and that so mean we should not accept the rule of law either? Yes. No, it certainly does not. It certainly does not. It certainly Isn't that does what's not. happening? No, no, it certainly does not, does, not, uh -huh. does, does not mean that, but it does mean that we have to have solutions which firstly recognize the concern of our population, that recognize that our resources are not limitless, and recognize that um, there is economic migration, uh, and it's not all genuine migration for mm -hmm. in relation to the refugees. If I okay. look, for example, at the example <laughs> of the Prophet Muhammad, if I may, if I may, Walidzab, yeah. if I may, Walidzab, if yes, I look okay. at the example no, so let, of the let, let, him, let him finish, yes, go on, uh, finish if, your if point. I look, if, if I look at the example of the Prophet Muhammad, on whom be peace, and who inspires me enormously and, and, and the most, when he, um, when the Muslims came to Medina, he introduced the concept of brotherhood, where Muslims within Medina would uh, take on 
um, the the migrants into their homes, and even the migrants would have uh, the right to inheritance. That's how close the relationship mm. was. Mm. And the Prophet Muhammad, on whom be peace, went to great pains to match uh, um, the migrants with the in- current inhabitants of uh, Medina. Okay. And it really, it, if if there are uh, communities in the UK that are able to put a case to government mm-hmm. that they will uh, sh- provide shelter uh, and a concept of brotherhood to those coming in, I'm sure the government would look favorably upon that. Okay, thank you. Uh, Nasser, you, you wanted to butt in. Um, no, I think it was myself. Um, what? You, you've gone from one point to another to another. Um, the, uh, when I came in, I was listening to Philip about Boris Johnson hmm. and, um, and about his role in COVID. But I think in the case of Boris, there are other whole theme of areas where he lies through to the country, and we found out subsequently that these were lies. And yes. It started yes. with, uh, firstly, it started with the uh, election campaign for, or referendum for Europe, to separate from Europe. He went out there and made a lot of false claims and false and then when he's in the government to actually do the treaty, he's messed up the whole of Irish part of the treaty, yes. and we're still Ireland is still suffering from it hmm. because he was competent on top of life. But Philip has apologised for that. Yeah. So, so he's I mean, conceded that there 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 were mistakes by by Mr. Boris Johnson. But but you don't fear, your party doesn't fear fear any well, better, I, does it? I mean, well, I, I'll come I back, mean, no, but your party has not been fulfilling uh, its promises. No, its uh, its record shows. Um, just a minute, Ali. I'm yeah. sitting here to your two conservative um, and Labour. No, no, and, Labour uh, and Conservative. No, not two. There was one Conservative, one Labour. Sorry, go ahead. Before I go to Lib Dem, if you don't mind, um, is that politics in this country is mixed with truth and lies. And the question is, the people are not always able to pick it up because the way the politics in this country works. There is a level of corruption in this uh, uh, democracy in, in our country. And, uh, and the ordinary people can't really pick that up. And that debate normally left to the politics debate amongst themselves. The, what happens is that the right elements of what they do, they bring in their agenda, and Tories are particularly good at this. They pick up and they say, well, there's a problem, there's a minority problem, so we bring a law. Like, for example, that Philip has given about immigration. There's a small amount of immigrants who are coming through that way, and the problem isn't with them, but the problem is with the Home Office inability for decades to deal with applications. So it actually brings a lot of problems to the front, which is our problem, and not the problem on the doorstep. Mm. Of, of the country, mm. but they use things like that to bring a law, right-wing law, in a country which destroys the country's morale. And immigration policy is exactly that. Started with Boris, mm. and Boris is the one who brought that policy of Rwanda. Okay, and we've talked about so, the conservatives enough. I want to talk about the Lib Dems. I mean, uh, your your record is is not very good when you were in government. Yeah, I mean, no, it has never been tested, is it? You can you can promise anything you want because you're never yeah. going to get into power. And but let me finish, uh, Nasser. But if I'm going to be asking a question, 
Nasser, if, I, if you're going to be answering a question, at least listen to it. What I'm saying is that when you did share power in 2010s, you were caught short as well. After so publicly pledging to abolish tuition fees, you went and supported them despite... Hey, listen, listen. Nasser, Nasser, what's the point of having this discussion if you're not going to listen to the question? After so publicly pledging to abolish tuition fees, you went and supported them despite having the ability of honouring your commitments. You were in government then. This doesn't bode well for your image of being honest and trustworthy, does it? Well, I think you asked that question to me. The only one you got, you keep asking me every time I come on this topic, but I answered that before and I'll answer it again. You're talking about tuition fees. You had to go back and remember what actually happened because you wrote the record wrong. What happened was the Labour Party before that brought the tuition fees. So they were sold on the idea of tuition fees, okay? So they were for it. And yes, the Tories were for it. Just a minute, and the Tories were for no, just a minute. Just a minute. Hanif, I'll bring you in. Can I just finish, please? So the Labour were for it. The Tories were fully for it. Now, what is the little Liberal Democrat government with very little power to negotiate coalition going to do even if the Tories agree to put it on the agenda? It was a hopeless situation when the two major parties are opposed to it. So the only thing we could do, we streamlined the whole process of student fees and made it much better and much easier for the students to pay or to be free. So there were certain definite changes made in order to improve the situation of students. That's the actual event. All right. So before I bring uh, Hanif in, so what you're saying is that you campaigned on abolishing tuition fees and when you were able to do something, when you went into government, you abandoned that policy. Hanif, what did you want to say? No, no, I didn't abandon it. We couldn't achieve it. Yes, you couldn't. <laughs> All right. If, so, if you've got two major parties opposed to it, how can you pass it through the party? You were, you were in you government. All right. Hanif, no, never mind government. Yeah, we, my, were my junior partner. we were a junior partner in government okay. without the, the parliamentary vote to pass that policy. All right. Okay. So, so because you can never get into government and you're always a junior partner, we can never really trust what you're saying will actually happen. Well, that, you can keep twisting your word, my word, but I said what exactly I said. what you're saying. Hanif, did you no, want I to didn't. say anything that would put, yeah, uh, put just, the case better? There's lots I want to say, but just on the specific point which Brother Nutton mentioned about the tuition fee. When the Labour Party introduced the tuition fee, it was an extremely well-calculated amount of only £3,000, which was more than sufficient for any graduate to be able to pay back. But what we're seeing today is, is an exaggeration and a, a manipulation and a destruction of the student loan system, where the system is now broken to the point where you come out as a graduate, you're in debt for 70, 80,000 pounds. How is that possible? Mm. That, that's the point I wanted to make. The okay. second thing is about where we talk about um, <clears throat> trying to get anything done. I mean, I've nicknamed this country as Blockage Britain. You want to get a passport, you can't do it. You want to get a driver's license, you can't do it. You want to get, you've done your test, you need to go and, uh, go and get a, an actual test for a driver's license. You've got to travel 100 miles. I mean, everything in today's society is broken, especially with the immigration. A brother Philip mentioned about the immigration. And when we talk about the, the people who are risking their lives to cross the channel, which only constitutes about 3% of the overall 
the legal migration. I mean, it, it, you can fix it. We've given so much money to France, Macron, but he doesn't do anything about it. We need a cross-border agency to solve this problem. And one more thing I'll say mm -hmm. is that Sky News were able to identify and find the gangs that were responsible for bringing the people across the boat. But our own home office wasn't even able to find them. This is how diabolical the home office has become. Mm. Now, in terms of immigration, we've always had immigration. Ever since I can ever remember, immigration has been in this country. I have to stop you there, Hanif, uh, because yeah. I do want to ask, uh, and we're running out of time, I do want to ask uh, uh, Nasser one other question about his leader's role in the uh, post office scandal. I mean, uh, it's, it's said, uh, Nasser, that uh, uh, when he was business secretary, uh, uh, what's his name, Ed Davey. Vince Cable was the uh, no, uh, Cable was the business secretary, and um, and I think there were junior ministers in the post for the post yeah, office. But he gave short shrift to okay. to to the sub postmasters, uh, please. Yes. Do you think that yeah. that that was wrong? And has he has he is well, it I enough think, that he's apologised? I mean, there's nothing to be. Uh, there's no question about wrongness. The government half has an, now half a minute. You have half a minute. Yeah, government. Yeah. Government has accepted it was wrong, and they are trying to fix somehow what what they can do to all those people who suffered in terms of compensation, change of law. There's no question. The government has accepted it was the Tory government and the coalition government at the time mm -hmm. who relied on post office figures, post office advices, and the ministers normally rely on civil servants and other bodies in order to make decisions. Okay. And the whole computer system was wrecked in the okay. sense, but they didn't know that. But no, they, okay. they know that now. It wasn't. It wasn't Ed Davies' fault. All right. Thanks very much. No, no. It was. A, it was government fault. Okay. The problem is. Yeah, all right. uh, you know, it happened. And we were. We have to go to the, the eleven o'clock news now. Sorry, uh, Nasser, to cut you off like that. But thank you very much for joining in, all of you. Peace be upon you. Good morning. Uh, welcome back to the Weekend World Show with uh, Daniel Kahlo and myself, Walid Ahmed. Uh, we were discussing earlier this uh, issue about uh, uh, truth, honesty, and integrity in politics, and we discussed this with uh, our guests, Hanif Khan, Philip Gent, Nasser Bhatt, uh, representing the three different parties that we have in this, or three different major parties that we have in this country. So just to, to bring that to a close, I just wanted to say this, that we've been discussing the issue of politics within the framework of uh, truth, honesty, integrity. Such values are important in public life and indeed in every aspect of our lives. When we look in history, we find it is prophets that best exemplify uh, these and teach humanity to do likewise. They are not ones to abandon their principles for any price. We learn of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, of how when uh, one particular chieftain, Uthbah bin Rabia, on behalf of the Makkan leaders, offered him everything, wealth, women and status, in exchange for him abandoning his principles in affirming the worship of one God and teaching others to do so, he refused. He was heard to announce that even if his enemies were to put the sun on the one hand and the moon on the other, he would not abandon uh, doing what he believed was right. This was a real mark of truth, honesty and integrity that was being displayed. And about observing the truth, uh, we heard uh, uh, of uh, a saying of the Prophet from Daniel earlier, but there was another uh, saying, he must be truthful, he said, for it is alongside righteousness and they are both in paradise. Beware of falsehood, for it is alongside wickedness and they are both in the hellfire. 
So, and in his observance of the truth, the promised Messiah, the founder of the Amdi Muslim community, was no different. He exemplified this in one particular incident that is cited in his biography, which I want to share with you. It is reads that once he posted a manuscript to a printer in which he also inserted a note giving instruction to the printer about the details. This was against the postal rules at the time for the postage paid, and breaking these rules was a criminal offence, punishable with a fine and imprisonment. The owner of the press was an opponent of the uh, promised Messiah and lost no time in taking him to court. Now his lawyer advised the promised Messiah to lie and claim he did not put the note in the package. This was a fabrication, and there was no proof he had done so, and the fact that the accuser was his opponent would give greater credence to the lie. There was no other way to escape the punishment. This is what the lawyer, lawyer argued. But the uh, promised Messiah was unyielding. He would not abandon the truth and deny something which he had done. The lawyer was so upset that he refused to act for him, and so the promised Messiah had to repre- represent himself to answer the charges. In court, the promised Messiah openly admitted that he had put the letter in the packet, but explained that since its subject matter contained instructions regarding the manuscript, he had in good faith thought that the letter formed part of the manuscript. The prosecutor argued that the promised Messiah had admitted his guilt and as such conceded that he had contravened the post office regulations, meriting the penalty of a fine and imprisonment. Uh, the magistrate listened to both sides and accepted the truthful testimony of the promised Messiah, throwing out the case and discharging him. This incident showed how dear, even in this kind of uh, uh, single matter, the truth was to the promised Messiah. Even when he was threatened with possible imprisonment and um, humiliation, he would not abandon the truth. Finding refuge in falsehood was not part of his character and he stuck resolutely to the truth at all times. When it comes to politics and public life, be it in this country or elsewhere, it is not for us to judge their standards of truth, honesty or integrity here at this radio station. That is for others to decide. But what we can say, and this is the thought that I would like to leave our listeners with, is how much would we benefit if our leaders and politicians attach the same importance to truth, honesty, and integrity as the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, and the promised Messiah, peace be upon him, did. Indeed, if they do this, the the world would be in so much a better state than it is today. So we'll go for a short break. After that, we'll come back for the next segment of the show. Assalamu A new station, the voice of Islam, with live discussions, religion and culture. Understand the true teachings of Islam with the voice of Islam. Welcome back uh, to the uh, Weekend World Show. Uh, this is uh, uh, from uh, Imam Daniel Kalon and myself, Ali Ahmed. And uh, we are now looking at current issues. And uh, we listen to a verse of the Holy Quran, after which uh, Daniel will be able to explain what uh, that translation of that verse is and what the subject matter we are covering.
over to you, Daniel, the translation of the verse. Yes, so the translation of that is they ask you about khamr, about wine intoxicants and gambling. They say in them is great sin and yet some benefit for people, but their sin is greater than their benefit. Yes, uh, the instance of drug abuse or uh, substance abuse is worrying in the UK. Drug uh, substance uh, abuse includes misuse of illicit drugs, various psychoactive substances, abuse of legal substances such as prescription drugs and alcohol. The UK has one of the highest rates of drug-induced deaths in Europe, with 76 deaths per million population. Despite strict laws being applied, uh, latest figures reveal 225,000 uh, offences were reported in 2019 to uh, 20. Cannabis is the most uh, widely used drug in the UK, followed by powder, cocaine, MDA, uh, MDMA and uh, ketamine. And what is alarming is that there is a rise in drug abuse among the young, especially adolescents. The most commonly offered drug to school children in England was cannabis, with almost a quarter of children reporting they had even uh, been offered the drug followed by cocaine and uh, crack. What else does this report say, Daniel? Drug misuse is one of the major reasons for fatalities of people aged between 16 and 40 years in the UK. In 2019, over 2.3 thousand deaths amongst males and 983 deaths amongst females in England occurred due to accidental poisoning by drugs, by drugs, medicaments and biological substances. Opioids, particularly heroin, remain linked with the highest health and social harm caused by illicit drug use in the United Kingdom. And before we move on, Uliza, can I just clarify why we're talking about drugs when the verse just mentioned wine and um, khamar? The, I just I would just like to just explain the word khamar mm. for our listeners and what link it has to drugs in this instance. So generally the word khamar in Arabic, it refers to wine, it refers to intoxicants, um, generally alcoholic beverages. But when we look at fiqh, when we look at the Islamic jurisprudence, the legal um, lens of Islam, um, it it uh, the the definition kind of encompasses a larger surface area. It, it um, talks about certain forbidden um, substances and its its technical definition actually depends on the madhab or the legal school which we follow so there's Hanbali, Hanafi, Maliki, Shafi'i four main legal schools that we follow and each one has a different type of uh, boundary to what they consider uh, intoxicants um, but uh, there are some legal schools which do include um, these kind of things opium and al-qat uh, in Arabic or khat um, these kind of drugs because they are intoxicants they change the way you think they change your um, mm-hmm. Ability to make decisions, mm-hmm. and it's all—it's this is actually based on hadith, on a saying of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, um, that uh, every intoxicant is khamr and every intoxicant is forbidden. Okay. So, so it's not just alcohol. It's not just alcohol. It's uh-huh. every intoxicant, whatever intoxicates uh-huh. you, makes you lose your senses. That is khamr mm-hmm. according to the Prophet's um, definition of this verse in the Quran, khamr oh, okay. and every khamr is forbidden. All right. So to discuss this uh, and to further our understanding of the problem that exists regarding drug and uh, substance abuse in the UK, I'm pleased to note that we have Dr. Amjad on the line. Salaam alaikum, Dr. Saab. Um, yes, um, Imam uh, uh, Daniel is uh, with me. He, uh, he has a few questions to pose, so if you don't mind answering them. Yes, So the first question we have is uh, drug and substance abuse is clearly a problem in the UK as you might have just as you might already know and as you might have just heard in this report. Yes, yes. Uh, why do you think this is the case? 
फर्स्ट ऑफ ऑल ब्रीफली इंग्लैंड annual cost of illicit drug misuse in uk is around 10.7 billion pounds oh dear okay wow uh, it is only for drugs and for alcohol it is double for example it, it mentions it is 21.5 billion pound every year wow so a lot of taxpayers money is spent to tackle this problem so this is a huge problem and which, this money can which, be yeah which could be used to fund the nhs education <laughs> other things yeah exactly yeah exactly my so it is a huge problem Wow, but yeah. it causes a lot of things. For example, mental health problems, physical problems, crimes. Mm-hmm. As you have mentioned briefly, it causes poverty because people have to buy drugs and then they have no money to eat food or on their children. Mm-hmm. They impair their decision making. So, and you have mentioned deaths. According yeah. to data in 2022, around 5,000 deaths were there in only England and Wales, mm-hmm. and 6,700 casualties on the road and. 1880 people killed or seriously injured in road traffic accident in 2021 so it is a huge problem indeed it's a huge problem and it's clearly yeah. a, a domino effect that that this, this drug problem causes other problems within society as you yes, just mentioned yes 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 domestic violence in community and at home mm yeah it is a big problem because when you are under influence of a intoxicant or alcohol drug you don't know what you are doing or saying Yeah yeah exactly so you're involved in crimes exactly so why why the Quran forbids it right you act yes, your senses yes, you're right <laughs> but but then the question here is that why is it especially especially the ad- adolescents and the young people who are particularly drawn towards drugs and then they carry on for the rest of their lives so we obviously see old people using drugs as well but that's because they were hooked onto it generally speaking when they were young why why is yes, it yes 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 and there is a reason for that there are a couple few reasons one reason is uh, i don't know how old you are at the moment 28 I am very old but uh, <laughs> but as a matter of fact when you are young especially you, during your teen years you want to explore things you want to learn things mm. yourself you are approaching to adulthood right. and you want to experiment things you want to test your boundaries and then you are curious about things mm. so you want to say oh because other people are using these things around you maybe there is a peer pressure Yeah. there is a media influence you want to escape from your problems or stresses and then you want to be part of the group you feel to grow up you want to be feeling independent some people use young people especially they want to really boredom they want to have instant gratification mm. they lack confidence confidence for example some are simply misinformed of no information about drugs yeah. and the other problem is that uh, some people they use as a self medication to different things for example physical health problems like pains or mental health problems like stress or anxiety or depression so there is some reason but i think one of the main reason is that uh, which is uh, of concern uh, parenting problem because parents can play a very big role but unfortunately some parents themselves they are not aware of this problem mm. and i believe islamic teachings can also help 
in good parenting as well so this problem can be solved of course islamic teachings uh, for forbiddance uh, prohibition of alcohol can save the taxpayers mm-hmm. in the uk 25 billion pounds as you've just mentioned uh, yeah. and also the for, uh, prohibition of drugs can save us 10 billion pounds yeah. uh, as mentioned and also my my train of thought after hearing what you've just said my train of thought this is this might be far fetched but goes towards the possibility that maybe this uh, generally um community uh, uh you know the focus on community um that islam provides especially for young people um it mm-hmm. might serve as a good uh, counterbalance to these drug issues loneliness and um you know being ill ill informed and everything in in our community we have many um events that the youth attend um mm-hmm. sporting events and academic events and constantly every week there's events going on keeping them busy Um, yes, yes. you know and maybe that's a good way to keep these young curious really minds very good way. yes yeah yes, but what other measures what what general measures are being uh, taken in this country so you might be able to give us some perspective from the health perspective but generally as well in this country yes, to tackle I think, this problem uh, the good thing is our government is doing a lot to tackle this problem or to make people and especially young people aware of this problem and the consequences of this problem mm. they're spending huge amount of money and according to i think one report uh, they have uh, fixed around 900 million pounds during current year especially to the young people uh, and they are getting all awareness in their schools for example universities colleges right. and if you drive on highway or motorway you will see sometime you will see please don't drink or drive yeah. don't do drugs it cost lives so right. government is doing really wonderful job and there are ads on sometime in media as well hmm. and in local regions there are lot has been done and so on local level because maybe you have left school long time ago but now yeah. there is a new effort to explain about this thing to teachers and students and all the young people and other people as well so we are doing a lot no that's good so so the two takeaway points for me in that are number one education um education yes, is yes, extremely yes. important in yes. tackling this issue and i'm sure many other issues as well and that's interesting because mm-hmm. we'll be discussing education later on with Lisa Banai mm-hmm. in the next segment and number two that was actually quite refreshing because you've just highlighted a positive aspect of the government of our politicians um after all the negative negativity we've been hearing lately <laughs> and everything this is a positive uh, aspect and i think credit where it's due and they are definitely doing doing well in in this regard in this specific regard because you're right on the roads when I'm driving I do see these signs that yes, yes. you know avoid alcohol avoid drugs it costs lives yes, yes. you're right okay so if someone is addicted to drugs right it's yes. too late they haven't been edu- or they haven't um, availed the education to not be mm-hmm. to not start drugs they they've started drugs and they're addicted now um what help is given to them to wean them off of their addiction I think it is a very good question because obviously if there is a problem there must be a solution and yeah. again I will say our government has done a great job in this regard every area is covered by a local specialist substance misuse service run okay. by NHS mm-hmm. every area so anybody can refer themselves to this service themselves or GP can refer or any other mental service or social services they can refer people to those services right and in that service there are competent and qualified and experienced people for example psychiatrists psychologists therapists nurses social workers occupational therapists a good team is there they assess such people 
and they they provide and offer treatment plan on individual needs hmm. so you should not be worried if some if you have unfortunately gone into drugs due to any reason yeah. help is there hmm. and they don't leave you until you are 100% cure all right and even right. if you need detox even if you need hospital admission for that too, it is free of charge hmm. okay interesting so there is a great help yeah yeah the the resources and the the help yes. is there is down to the person yes. to avail that yes and even in private sector now it is a growing because it is a growing problem so support is growing as well so in mm. private sector there are if you want to go to private route there are private uh, organizations there are private hospitals which are providing the same service so help is there right okay well in another light though with regards to political discussions um yeah. taken place taking place in the yeah. UK recently regarding the decriminalization of drugs and treating the possession of drugs as a public health issue rather than a criminal one um to to, to reduce drug related deaths do you think that this is one of the me- that this is one of the measures the UK should take to deal with this problem or, or will it just cause more problems i think in my uh, professional and personal opinion it uh, will be a very good idea because uh, decriminalization would focus on harm reduction rehabilitation and reforming how society views drug users and then healthcare services and the criminal justice system would endure less stress mm-hmm. freeing up money that the government can redirect to treatment and community services and in fact in many countries uh, they have started already they think on these lines and they are getting benefit yeah of this for example i worked in netherlands holland mm-hmm. and you will be surprised they are they are tackling this in a different way okay. and and they are producing a very good data about the after effects of uh this i can say way of dealing with the situation but from what i've heard is is very easy to get your hands on um some substances in holland yes. so doesn't this approach kind of open that that door to um the people who might not have gone down that route because <laughs> it was a crime earlier but now I, they think oh it's not a crime so why not try it what's the harm i was expecting this question and yeah. you will be surprised that uh, uh, especially atmosphere in amsterdam you are right it is like that yeah but you will be surprised to know the data that most of the people who are going to <laughs> they are they are not from local dutch nation people they are coming from other countries to get benefit of that service oh, okay okay <laughs> <laughs> and in fact if you are a dutch national or if you live in netherlands mm. you will have uh, uh, for example you can get on hand of drugs but at the same time uh, you will get local support from your gp for example even mm. from your priest or church or community they will be providing parallel uh therapy and motivating you or telling about things so in fact most of the people they they leave drugs right okay so most of the people who use this they go from outside according to their data we can say so so what it sounds like is one it, it removes the stigma right by it decriminalizing stigma, yeah. it it removes the stigma and yeah. number two it also removes the novelty because before uh you know it's it's like the apple in the garden of eden you're not allowed to eat it um and that mm. makes you want to eat it but then once yes. you're allowed to eat an apple who wants to <laughs> like right now i don't feel like eating an apple even though i'm allowed to eat mm. an apple <laughs> there's no you know driving force at the moment so okay i, I understand that um maybe that approach mm. would help mm. but i'm still not sure if uh 
the Brits would take a similar approach to to the Dutch. Um, are, are we as sensible as the Dutch in, in that regard? Would we would we see similar results? Do you think? Uh, I think so because uh, recently, even in Canada, they have legalized uh, cannabis, for example. Yeah. Although in a small amounts and is happening in similar countries, other countries as well. Hmm. So things, but obviously uh, we are living in a democratic country, so people have to decide and politician has to respect the wishes of the people. Of course. Yeah. So we don't know that which way we are going. But I think the better education, better awareness and healthy debates regarding this matter and open debates yeah. definitely will solve this problem. For sure, that, that does sound good. Yeah. Okay, so currently in the US, okay, yeah. with regards to drugs, most of the news we hear is either from Amsterdam or, New- or US, and the negative news yes. that we hear is mainly from the US. Yeah. So the US is, is having to grapple with the use of fentanyl, um, right? Yeah. This term, we've been seeing a, a, it a lot lately, a new manufactured drug. Are you worried that the problem is going to potentially... Um, move here to the UK as well? Yes, but I think uh, it is maybe a wrong impression that it is a new drug. <laughs> okay, okay. Can you, yeah, can you explain what fentanyl is for, yes, for people Basically, like fentanyl us? is a, in a plain English, fentanyl is a pain relief medication, mm-hmm. but very strong. Okay. 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 On one end, we have paracetamol, which is very mild pain, pain relief medication, painkiller. Sometimes it feels like it have, doesn't even work. <laughs> yes. So people say it doesn't work, but it works. Okay. So fentanyl is the on the top list. It is 50 times stronger than heroin and 100 times stronger than morphine. Wow. So you can see how strong it is. But it was developed, I think, in US in 1959. So it is okay. not a new drug, in fact. Okay. But the problem was it was developed for medical reasons, for pain relief and for an local anesthesia or general anesthesia even. Mm-hmm. So people have been using in medical healthcare, even in UK it has been, we are using, we have been using in hospitals for example. Yeah. But it was a controlled drug, but the problem was when due to some reasons it came onto streets mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. and people started using and now it is causing a, maybe around or more than 70,000 deaths per year in US. Wow, okay, wow. 70,000 per year, and it is recorded deaths, and there are unrecorded deaths due to other reasons which are not there on, in data. Okay. So this a, is the really worrying for everyone. And that's that's a pandemic. Is So does that mean that uh, fentanyl is sold over the counter in the US? Or no, 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 they're not selling it. It is uh, illegally illegal, required. illegal, but it is uh. available like other things. So it's only legal in a medical setting, in a controlled medical setting. Yeah, it is. It is. It is. It is. It is. Obviously, mm. uh, it is legal like other things as well. Right. Okay. So, and what what is it actually generally used for? So, if if um, why would you uh, prescribe fentanyl over paracetamol to no? To, uh, for example, patient? there are people with severe pain which are not helped by paracetamol, as you said, does not work. Mm-hmm. So there are grading of pain and there are grading of medication to be used. So if you are mild pain, mild mild analgesia, then moderate and severe and then more severe. Right. So in some cases you will have so uh, severe pain that there is nothing else. So then in a very strict manner this can be given to patients. For example, they are having cancer pains and bone pains. Uh, so. It can be prescribed, but in a very specialist way, and specialists um, people have to prescribe, not uh, yeah. everyone. <laughs> okay. For example, GPs are not prescribing in their surgeries. Yeah, yeah, okay. 
Okay, right. So uh, just a quick question whilst we're still on the US is with regards to crystal meth, um, what do you know about it? Because uh, I don't know much about it. All I know is that it was uh, potentially glorified in Breaking Bad, maybe not glorified, but it was the main um, drug in in Breaking Bad. And I never watched Breaking Bad, I only watched three episodes. I couldn't really get into it. What What is crystal meth? Why don't we have it here? I think the... Crystal meth, in nutshell, it is a stimulant drug, like uh, other things, mm-hmm. okay? And it has uh, different names, for example, speed and crank and chug and apples and twig and all the things. Right. There are many names. But basically, it is a stimulant drug. Mm-hmm. And when somebody uses it, initially, they feel euphoric. That they feel oh, they are very happy and they feel better, more energetic mm-hmm. and things like that. So I think, uh, I, but this feeling goes away <laughs> after yeah, of course. some time, and then you feel the dip, mm. and then you need more. Ah, it's a cycle. And obviously, when you are, uh, you see, when you are depressed, you can do things, but you you, you will not affect the society or the other people. But when you are high on mm. such things, mm. you can be dangerous for other people for example you can drive very fast on the motorway and cause accident of killing other people that's very true you can yeah. kill other people yeah so this is a is very <laughs> dangerous things like all other that things. is true that is true okay so uh, last question if in, in just a minute you could um let me know your thoughts so do you think that the problem of drug substance and abuse is going to get worse in the future or better? I know you don't know the future, but just judging on, on the trends and the medical analysis that you, you have access to, what uh, do you say? I think if we see the history and um, if we see what is happening in the world now, right now, mm. uh, it, the problem is going to increase Okay. and maybe harmlessly. Mm-hmm. I don't know whether you have read any newspaper today or not, uh, or any news. Uh, today, there was an article on Sky News that uh, there's a story of a mom with kids. She said uh, she lives locally. I can't, I should not be <laughs> giving details, but yeah. on, the, on, the, on the paper, the name is mentioned and the area is mentioned. Oh. She gets up in the morning. She often starts her day with a class A drug before breakfast, a cup of tea and small capsules of major mushrooms. Okay. And she says she's doing very well because why she is using? To ease the stresses of modern life. And this is the one of the main mm. things okay. that uh, people feel that uh, we are stressed. There are a lot of psychosocial stresses going on. They are increasing. For example, financial crises are there. Mm. For example, there are other problems are growing. So people feel an easy escape is to use such things to feel better and to function even normally. Yeah. And this mom says she's functioned better and she's functioning. She's taking care of it better when she's on very small dosage of these magic mushrooms, which are obviously hallucinogen. Uh, so how, how do we debunk her? <laughs> <laughs> so it is going to be increased. And the other problem is that, uh, unfortunately, media sometimes looks like they are glorifying the use you will see in movies and this. And, and songs. And that people yeah. are using these. And when you, when you hear celebrities are using this. Yeah. And the other problem is, uh, is a real problem that people want to work longer hours, for example. They have to work. One of my relatives' son is working in London mm. from 
8 a.m. to 10 p.m. Wow, okay. He must in be the in finance. Sector, <laughs> yeah. In the banking sector, Raghavlori, see, he has to sit there. So he needs energy. And he told me that they increase use of stimulant drugs unofficially. Oh, okay. So you will have energy, you will have more focus, they believe, falsely. So then you are hooked up. <laughs> Oh wow! Okay, okay. So, so it is a really big issue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I I understand your your viewpoint. I think hearing what you've said and generally of what I know as well, I do think that it's probably going to increase as well the issue. Yeah. But like you said, um, the government is trying um, to raise yes, more awareness. Trying, yes, very yeah. well. Thank you very much, Doctor Amjad. That was a very okay, interesting yeah, talk. Welcome. Welcome. Right, uh, so that was uh, Dr. Amjad uh, answering questions from um, Daniel about uh, the issue of uh, drug abuse in this country. So we now uh, move on to the next part of the show, which is Ask the Imam, where Daniel, instead of uh, quizzing somebody else, will be in the hot seat uh, <laughs> to, be, uh, to be quizzed himself. Now, uh, it's regarding this issue about education. Um, Growing up in the West, we've often been told that Muslims in general and Islamic civilizations and empires in the past were barbaric and uneducated. In fact, they were staunch opponents of education and learning. At least this is what uh, has been portrayed. Hmm. Um, so, Daniel, um, yeah, to what extent is that true and how, how can you debunk this, 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 this uh, distortion of um, reality? Well, we don't need to go far. Uh, we can just look at the primary source of of guidance for Muslims. We can. Um, n- the fact is that education, Muslims and education, um, they they it's it's not a contradiction. These two words they don't go against each other. In fact, they actually go hand in hand, um, and history proves. And we'll go on into that uh, later. But even our scripture it, it encourages education. Um, so Muslims, if if we see Muslims these days as being uneducated, blame the Muslims, don't blame Islam, mm. is what we need to keep in mind. Okay. And uh, what we find in... Uh, okay, give us some examples of uh, what we find in Islamic literature regarding education. Yeah, so first and foremost, um, we'll look at the Quran, the primary source of guidance, um, which we believe to be the word of God revealed to the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, preserved word for word, dot to dot, for 1400 years so in the Quran we, we're actually encouraged to um, pray to God and the Quran says and say oh my Lord increase me in knowledge right it's a prayer we're encouraged to pray to God that he increases us in knowledge um, the Quran wouldn't if there was no importance to education or knowledge um, then the Quran wouldn't have instructed us it's qul, it's an instruction um, oh, oh my lord increase my knowledge it wouldn't have instructed us to ask god to increase us in knowledge we have a lot of um sayings of the prophet muhammad narrations um peace and blessings of allah be upon him as well with regards to education so he's clearly um as we always mention he's uswat and hasanatan he's the greatest example of mankind um and his what was his example Khan, as his wife aisha peace and uh, uh, may Allah be pleased with her mention uh, that his um, morals and ethics were the Quran so whatever he did and said was exactly in accordance with the Quran um, we find a narration um, where he says that uh, 
seek knowledge, even if you have to go to China. At the time, Arabia and China were literally worlds apart. Traveling to China would have taken months and months. Um, so just to seek knowledge, he he encouraged people to uh, go and um, uh, see, uh, go to China. We have reports in in other books of hadith. That, for example, there's um, Sahih Muslim. Uh, where Abu Huraira, the companion, reported that Allah's Messenger, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, said that when the time would draw close to the last hour, knowledge would be snatched away, turmoil would be rampant, miserliness would be put in the hearts of the people, and therefore, and there would be much blood bloodshed. They said, "What is al harj?" Thereupon he said, "It is bloodshed." So, there are many more hadith like this as well that towards the end. Um, of times, you know, knowledge would be snatched away. Uh, Ibn Abbas, a, a young companion of the Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, um, said that the Prophet um, embraced me and said, Oh Allah, teach him the knowledge of the book of the Quran. So the emphasis is on Islamic knowledge, on Quranic knowledge, and also on general um, secular knowledge as well, scientific knowledge, constantly throughout the mm. um, Holy Quran and the sayings of the Prophet, mm. peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. So, so um, during the lifetime of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, there was a great emphasis on education and reading and writing. Yes. And uh, that was also used as a means of uh, freeing exactly. captives. Exactly. And those who were able to teach a certain number uh, to, to read and write. Right. It was, it, it was valued more than gold in a way where uh, captors from... Uh, between the battles between the Muslims and the polytheists, when the polytheists were prisoners of war who were treated very kindly mm. and very fairly, fed whatever the Muslims were eating, um, one of the uh, ways for them to um, uh, free themselves is not through gold or ran- ransoming paid for them, but rather them teaching 10 Muslim children or 10 Muslim uh, companions to read and write. Okay. That was the emphasis on literature. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then there's various narrations we we find you mentioned some. Uh, uh, there was one about uh, the acquisition of knowledge is incumbent upon every believer, uh, male and female. Yes. So that's also something that's encouraging exactly. people to and seek knowledge even if you have to go to China. China, yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, and so many like that. So yeah. uh, the emphasis on uh, on uh, uh, acquiring knowledge, acquiring education is very, is very marked, very great. Yeah. Are there any examples of uh, this teaching being acting upon by Muslims? Okay, so we we mentioned this uh, aspect about uh, 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 captives seeking or achieving their freedom through yeah. teaching others. But what about, I mean, are there any other examples? There are. So that, as you mentioned, that example that we just discussed was during the time, lifetime of the Prophet, uh-huh. peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. Let's look at the, the time afterwards, right? Um, so almost immediately after after his um, passing, when uh, the Caliph Umar, radiallahu he was the second successor of the Prophet when he was in charge. Um, and his armies, uh, defeated the Persian Empire um, uh, and that was the end of the Persian Empire um, so when the the Arabs came out of Arabia the Muslims came out of Arabia they went to Persia they conquered Persia um, they they there was this place right um, I, I forget the name it's, it's a Persian name um, there was a specific library ac- academy type of place and they asked the Persians that what is this place and they said this is well this is our academy and um, the Arabs said, okay, so what's an academy, right? Uh, because obviously educational institutes were not non-existent in Arabia at the time. They said it's a place where all the books and all the knowledge of the known world that we know of is gathered in one place. 
And then they said, okay, show us. And, you know, the Persians showed them everything. And then they said, okay, this is interesting. Teach us, right? And although they didn't become scholars straight away, those Arabs, it took about two centuries, but two centuries later, all of a sudden you have Arabs and Persians and Muslims in general just, you know, uh, coming out as 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 just monoliths of education. We've got Al-Khwarizmi, the founder of algorithms, right? We have uh, Ibn Sina, um, the founder of modern medicine right we have so many different uh uh different scholars come coming out and that that time eventually uh, leads to the abbasi period of islam when the abbasid caliphate ruled vast lands and uh when al-mansur the abbasid caliph he he founded the city of baghdad uh, the round city of baghdad which was the most advanced city at the time um and then he started this process and it carried on, especially uh, in the time of in the reign of his grandson Harun al Rashid, uh, the Baytul Hikmah, the House of Wisdom, right, which was literally the center of knowledge and education of the entire world at the time. Um, people came from all over the world to come and um, learn in the in the House of Knowledge, which was full of um, texts and manuscripts and knowledge from all over the world. And then what uh, uh, Harun al Rashid's son, specifically Al Mamun, um, focused on was the translation of Greek and Latin texts into um Arabic. into Arabic yeah uh-huh. and that knowledge in that way was preserved and passed on and that knowledge became open to the to the masses because Arab Arabic was a lingua franca in 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 the whole muslim empire and even outside the way english is uh, yeah. at, at the moment uh-huh. arabic was considered and even you had english englishmen you had europeans coming to arabic um places of learning both like and, and universities um, in North Africa, the very first university was established by uh, Fatima al-Fihri, a woman, right, um, uh, in Morocco. Uh, and the reason now in, in the West we see these university graduates wearing these long, baggy um, robes and tho- uh, clothes which resemble thobes is because uh, it's from that time It's it, when the Europeans used to come to these Arab, con- these Muslim lands and study in their universities and because everyone was wearing those long um, clothes and everything so that when the Europeans went back to their countries they used to wear these clothes to show that they are graduates of university they are mm-hmm. graduates of um, mm-hmm. education of higher education mm-hmm. and that tradition has carried on mm-hmm. even now so it's just full of examples yeah. well, what about the accusation that uh, Muslim education did not actually furnish any new knowledge they just uh, passed uh, a Greek and Roman knowledge uh, and just basically copied them. Uh, that's and a, that's what what they gave to the West. Yeah, nothing, that's, nothing new. That's very interesting. Um, by the way, I didn't I didn't know you asked me this today, but it's it's a coincidence that I actually came across something very interesting um, in the past couple of days, exactly mm. about this. <laughs> mysterious way God works. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yes. So uh, in the modern West, right, we the doctors they take the Hippocratic oath and they they consider Hippocrates to be the father of medicine, right? But if you look at he he had immense contributions towards medicine. There's absolutely no doubt. Um, he really encouraged the um, the act of observation, observe the patient and see what's wrong with him, and then do what you need to do. But uh, a lot of his theories they're they're pretty outdated and and they're not really applicable to medicine um, as such. They didn't really make sense um, anyway, right? Um, because uh, some some theories, for example, they weren't just his theories. They were theories that just for centuries and millennia just kept. Uh, going on, which, for example, if a black cat walks in front of you, you're going to get a disease soon. Or if you drink uh, milk um, whilst eating fish, you're going to get a certain disease, right? And it was just that disease was one big thing. Then Ibn Sina came. Um, I believe it was Ibn Sina. 
who was a true father of modern medicine. And he said, hold on, there's no such thing as disease. There's, there's, a, there's diseases, right? If you do such and such thing, if you touch feces, you will get such and such disease. If you uh, do such and such thing, right, uh, inhale such, such a gas, you will get such a disease. And he started explaining that, look, uh, there are diseases and there are causes for those diseases. And all of those causes are different. And all of those diseases and the symptoms are going to be different, right? So we need to look at things from that perspective. And he literally became the, the point of reference for medicine for almost three or four hundred years, at least three or four centuries, right up until the 18th century. And then that's when um, the Western minds uh, mm. went towards en- enlightenment and focused on, educa- on education and medicine. But it was the Arabs, for example, who invented the scalpel, right? Um, you know, a lot of medical instruments that are in use even to this day were invented by the Arabs. So mm-hmm. even though there's absolutely no doubt that the Arabs, the Muslims, they did focus, uh, they did gain a lot of benefit from previous knowledge of the Greeks and Romans and Latins and Indians. There's absolutely no doubt and no one denies that they they did, right? Because we have a shared um, human history and heritage. But uh, they did bring in a lot of new things. So they developed uh, new knowledge or they acquired new knowledge on the basis of what they had acquired from Greek and and the Romans, it wasn't just a copy and paste and passing it on to the West exactly. to build upon. Exactly, oh, and it would have been yeah. a waste for them not to look at previous yes. work and tr- just try to um, in- reinvent the wheel. That wouldn't mm-hmm. have made sense, even though they did um, discover many, many new things which hadn't been discovered before. For example, the heart and its different sections. For example, the, uh, the science of optics was pretty much invented by the oh. Muslim Arabs at the time. Okay. Now, this uh, accusation of barbarism and uh, illiteracy um, is also supported by the accusation that uh, the Muslims destroyed libraries, particularly the Library of Alexandria. So what's what's the reality or the truth about that? Right, so the story goes that uh, when Amr ibn al-As, the commander of the armies um, that Omar, uh, may Allah be pleased with him, sent to Egypt, when he conquered Alexandria, uh, Al-Iskandaria in Arabic, um, he he had a discussion with the patriarch at the time over there with regards to the, the Library of Alexandria specifically, which was known as the center of the world at the time with regards to knowledge. They had all the knowledge um, available in the known world. And he said, our caliph has said that if there's any knowledge which goes in line with um, the knowledge of the Book of Allah, then there's no need for it because we have the Book of Allah. And if there's any knowledge that goes against the Book of Allah, then there's no need for it either, so burn it. And apparently it was all burned. What's interesting is that this um, story was narrated by Al-Faraj, uh, who was a Syrian Christian, um, right? Um, and uh, Al-Qifti as well, right? And this story actually came about, uh, this story was f- for the first time circulated 500 years after the conquest of Alexandria, mm-hmm. of the Muslims. So for 500 years, no one ever said that it was the Muslims who burnt the Library of Alexandria. All of a sudden, 500 years later, uh, this story starts circulating. And then how did it become more prominent and famous in the West is uh, there was uh, an Orientalist of Arab Arab studies, Professor at Oxford University in the 1600s, in the 17th century, Edward Pocock. Um, I think I'm pronouncing his name, name right. And he translated... Uh, Abul Faraj's text where he mentions this story from Arabic into Latin, right? And that's how this the West came to know of this. It's been thoroughly debunked. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact is, first of all, there were there were two libraries of Alexandria. It was one institute, but there were two sites. The first site was destroyed by 
the Romans, Julius Caesar specifically in 48 BC, when there was a civil war, Cleopatra against her brother, um, Ptolemy. Mm-hmm. And uh, Ptolemy had uh, pretty much surrounded Alexandria. Caesar and Cleopatra were in Alexandria. They were outnumbered. They were outgunned. Um, Ptolemy's ships, his fleet had actually surrounded the city. And Caesar saw the only way to, out of this is by burning the fleet. So he burnt he started a fire, burnt all the ships. That fire spread to the city, damaged the city quite a bit and damaged that um, first uh-huh. site of the Library of Alexandria. The second one was when Emperor Theodosius, Roman Christian Roman emperor, in 391 issued an edict for all pagan, everything pagan, temples, anything, to be destroyed um, and uprooted. And in that, the second part of uh, the Library of Alexandria, which was within a temple, a polytheist temple at the time, was burned down mm-hmm. by the Christians, not the Muslims, oh. by the Christians. That's very mm-hmm. important to note. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, yeah. Okay. Uh, just got a minute and a bit to go. Um, about this day and age, I mean, do Muslims apply the tenet that they're supposed to about uh, education and the importance for education and acquiring knowledge? Um, we we wish that more Muslims would, uh, but we can't say that Muslims don't either. We've got the uh, great example of Professor Dr. Abdul Salam from our mm-hmm. community who won a Nobel Prize in Physics um, for his contribution in the electromagnetic weak theory, mm-hmm. I believe. Um, and we've got the example of Zafrullah uh, Khan Saib, who was uh, uh, who was a, an authority in in legal studies and education. He was a lawyer. He was a judge. Uh, we've we've got the example of many many Muslims. Look at the uh, Gazans, for example. Before this um, horrendous um, oppression upon them, uh, their literacy, literacy rates were pretty much ninety nine percent. They had some of the sharpest and brightest minds in the world. They just didn't have the opportunity to really contribute to the world as um, in, in that in a way. But they, the education and the thirst and lust for education was there. So we've got the capacity. We've got the encouragement in our texts and in our history all we need to do is we need to uh, avail it more. okay no thanks very much a uh, very uh, concise and uh, comprehensive coverage of this particular uh, issue uh, and i'm sure it's been very informative to our listeners thank you very much uh, listeners if they do want to join us then uh, do please uh, take the opportunity of ringing in we are waiting uh, i hope amran is uh, yes we are waiting for shahid khan to be put on um, but um, uh, as I as we were trying to mention uh, earlier, if you want to contribute uh, in any way regarding uh, sharing your views and opinions uh, on what we've been uh, discussing, then please do ring in. There's still time. Zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight is the number. Uh, we'll go for a very short break, and after that, we'll come back and look at the sports with Shahid Khan. A new station, the Voice of Islam with live discussions, religion and culture. Understand the true teachings of Islam with the voice of Islam. Peace be upon you. Welcome back to Weekend World uh, with uh, Daniel Khan and myself, Ali Ahmed. Uh, and we are now going to proceed with this sports part of the program. Shahid Khan is with us. Assalamu alaikum, Shahid. How are you, sir? Waalaikumsalam. I'm fine, thank you. All right. Um, a number of issues that we can discuss that are uh, circulating regarding uh, uh, the sports. Uh, blue card. What, what's, what is it and what do you think about it? Well, this is a new innovation that the International Football Association's uh, body wishes to bring on. Uh, in addition to the two cards that we have already, the yellow and the red card, mm-hmm. 
The blue card will be something that is called a sin bin card. In other words, it will be a temporary suspension for of the player in that in 10 minutes you will have to spend in the sin bin, in other words, on the sideline with a technical delegate. So this is something that they wish to bring in. Basically, it was to target the bad behavior of the players, and this is something that they would come in. Uh, the other mm, mm. labels or the cards you mentioned are already there, right. but this will be in addition to that. But uh-huh. there's been so much opposition that I think this has been delayed. Al- although I wasn't aware of the fact that this has been on trial since 2019 in the lower league. So this is something they wish to bring it on. But because of the, the recent uh, backlash by the managers and the players and the fans and so forth, uh, so this has actually been sidelined and kicked for the moment. And I think it's just adding to the number of uh, things that the referees have to bring in. And I think it's the simple game is becoming even more complicated by the looks of the what the manager is saying at the moment. Mm. The, the big news uh, in the last two weeks was uh, regarding uh, the Liverpool manager Jurgen Klopp uh, saying that he would not be uh, continuing after this season. Uh, what, what's your thoughts about that? Well, that's very interesting because it is. It came as a big shock to everybody. I'm sure that the footballing fraternity would be uh, would welcome him to have a break. That's something that he has suggested that he has run out of energy. I mean, that's ridiculous. Not ridiculous, but it is something unheard of in footballing terms. Mm. When I compare this with something like Alex Ferguson, for instance, he was a Manchester for 26 years, mm. and uh, just the one club, and the uh, the way that he handled every pressure, well, pressure, so called, so forth was amazing. So for Klopp to say that uh, he has run out of energy uh, is something that the managers have to live with and have lived in the past. So I'm quite surprised and I'm sure that not just the football fraternity but indeed the Liverpool fan base have actually been quite adamant in the fact that uh, they are surprised somewhat. Uh, Well, shocked as you say. And to come at such a time when I think they are running in for the uh, title or more or less uh, after a long time and uh, not to say that he has not achieved anything at uh, Liverpool. He's been a tremendous manager in the last eight years that he has been there. Mm. Well, you're saying that they're uh, going for the uh, Premiership, but uh, they've got a very formidable rival in uh, in Manchester City. Do you think that Manchester City can be overhauled uh, before they can uh, realise their fourth back-to-back uh, Premiership win? Yeah. Yes, indeed. I mean, Manchester City, I mean, they did have that blip early before, just before Christmas, and the number of players have been injured, like a lot of other teams have had their major major players of theirs missing. So in terms of, I think, the fact that, like you mentioned, that they have a very formidable rival here, uh, and also Arsenal having dropped all those points at one stage, which was for them to lose it rather than to win it. So they've taken the back burner. But Manchester City, by the looks of it, I think we mentioned at the start of the season, would be the team that eventually would come to the fore. And so it seems to be that some of their players were coming back at the right time for them, for instance, like uh, Harland, having not scored even since November. And the team still did well. And I, when I see their track record in the last five games, for instance, they're the only team that has won all their five games. And that juggernaut seems to be continuing on and on. Mm. And even some of the other uh, competitions that they're in don't seem to deter them from really targeting the Premier League. Mm. So I think uh, Liverpool do have a very, very difficult rival in that. And I think it's a three-man three or three-horse race in that Arsenal also, they're, they're about at the moment. But eventually, I think uh, Manchester City, with all their 
backrooms, the big uh, squads that they have hmm. will eventually prevail, my feeling is. I know that the bench is very, very impressive, isn't it? Every time the the camera goes over there, <laughs> you, <laughs> wonder, you wonder, you wonder why. Absolutely. Yes. Um, now, um, Tottenham are having a good season. Uh, they seem to be eking out a win or a last-minute goal quite regularly. Um, well, do you think they have a chance? And I think Postal Togler has given the, uh, the supporters something to really cheer about, and I think that's the best thing that they can. I think, in fact, even a top four would be a good thing, or be a thing, great achievement for them after having lost Harry Kane and they were the main player for a number of years. And having to replace him, not only that, but the method of their play is what is more pleasing than actually the result. You mentioned, I think they dropped some points last week against Everton. Hmm. So they're there about. But the way that they're playing football is, I think, more pleasing than actually the results at the moment. And like they eked out the result yesterday against Brighton. Hmm. Uh, but I think the, the fan base is more happy with the way that they have actually uh, played this year compared to some of the other great managers of the past, Mourinho and Conte. That they ne- never really put the Tottenham method of play at all in their play. And although they eked out some results, uh, but I think for change, Tottenham, I think, are in the mix, but I think they have difficulty even getting the top four position. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they do no, play. No, uh, yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, they do play exciting football. I mean, uh, yesterday's match against Brighton was very like, very much like a basketball, as compared to a basketball <laughs> yeah. match, wasn't it? It's, uh, both teams going for it. Uh, uh, what about today's uh, matches? Uh, what are your thoughts about that, them? Uh, Aston Villa uh, versus Manchester United, do you think? Because uh, Aston Villa have proved to be a surprise this season. Aston Villa have been a team that I think have been playing so well and I think Manchester United is a team that needs to get the points and then Hawks still is under pressure after Mm. all despite the fact that I think they're not far off from the top of the table but the gap is so great and Aston Villa I think need the points and I think my feeling is that they will eke out a victory today Uh the other one is the London derby West Ham against Arsenal I think Arsenal will be too strong Declan Rice Yes. Okay. Declan Rice going back to his old club. Uh, so you think Arsenal will be too strong? I think so. Yes, Arsenal are a uh, side that actually are playing well as well, and although they've dropped points recently, mm-hmm. uh, not to say that West Ham can spring a result or a shock at times, but I think Arsenal on the on the whole will be getting three points today on that one. Okay. Well, thanks very much for uh, for uh, giving us your thoughts on these uh, on these matters. Uh, wish you all the best. Thanks very much for coming. Thank on. you, Mike. Thanks for Thank you. Assalamualaikum. Yes, Thank pleasure. Right, uh, Daniel, this is it. Uh, it's the end. Everything uh, has to come to an end. Yes. yes. Nothing is uh, infinite. Kuluman alayha fan, as the Quran says, everything um, comes to an end. Yes. So, anyway, except for so, God. Well, yes, except for God, of course. <laughs> oh, very good. Very good. Thank you very much for that. Uh, clo- those closing words. Um, but there is one other thing that we need to do is just to thank those people who have uh, been involved in the product- produ- production of this program and particularly uh, in making sure that everything technically ran smoothly. Amagan and Tala uh, in the uh, control room uh, were instrumental in this. So, Zakallah to them. Thank you to them. Thank you to our listeners for joining in uh, and listening to our program. Do join us again uh, in two weeks' time when uh, Asan Amdi and myself will be back with Daniel Kano, of course, uh, to uh, deliver the uh, Weekend World Show. So until then, Islam from both of us. Islam alaikum. A new station, the voice of Islam, with live discussions, religion and culture. 
understand the true teachings of Islam with the voice of Islam.